All right. Good morning. Good morning. How are we? Good. Good. We're going to jump in today and get rolling. We're uh, continuing in our sermon series. Today's the last day of our sermon series of the God Questions. We've dealt with, uh, this will be our eighth week of, of questions that people ask about God, questions that people wrestle with, where they're trying to come to an understanding of, is God real? Does he really exist? Is, there, is the Bible true? You know, why do we follow this guy, thing, this guy God? And, and, and what, what about the church? And so today we're going to, to finish that series with a, a question that I think fits our culture. Question of, does God hate gay? Does God hate gays? And so if you have a Bible, if you would turn with me to John chapter 8. Just turn with me to John chapter 8. If you need a Bible, we've got an usher in the back. Uh, Mike is a Cowboys fan, but he will give you a Bible. So if you just put your hand up, we will get you a Bible. Um, Once you get to John chapter 8, just put your finger there. We're going to come back to that. We've got a couple other places we're going to look at first. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's pray. God, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that it is a happy day that you came and saved us, that you sent your son to die on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that we would be able to celebrate just who you are. Lord, I pray as we open up your word and we deal with this, this, this question, God, God, what do you hate? Do you hate gays? Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and that you would give us understanding as to your character and who you are and that you are a God of love. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding and that we would honor you with everything that happens today. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So as we, we deal with this, one of the first things I wanted to, to talk about was, have you noticed that when you look at Christians in the media, you turn on CNN, you turn on Good Morning America, whatever your favorite news show is, whatever your favorite media station is, when you find a Christian in the media, they are typically uh, on there because they're knocking something, they're, they're, they're about something they're against. They bring them on, you watch the show, and the Christian is there, and they're saying, I'm against this, and I'm against that. And, 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 and it seems that whenever an evangelical Christian is brought into the conversation, they're there because they're denouncing something. Maybe they're, dona- they're denouncing homosexual marriage, gay marriage. Maybe they're denouncing some pastor's mistakes. Maybe they're, they're denouncing evolution. But when you see an evangelical Christian in the media, they're typically portrayed about what they are against. Am I right? And, and, and so... Uh, whatever it is, maybe it's a hot political issue at the time. You see Christians, and it's always about what they're against. There's a, there's a pastor and author by the name of Tim Stevens. He wrote this book called Pop Goes the Church. Pop Goes the Church. And in there, he, he writes about six negative in, images that Christians have from, from non-Christians. Six negative images that, 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 that the unchurched see about us churched people. And the six images are, they say that we are too hypocritical. They say that we're too focused on conversions and not focused enough about people. They say that we're homophobic. They say that we're sheltered. They say that we're too political. They say that we are judgmental. And because of these, because of these images that Christianity has, has, has put on the front, because the, the, the world around us, the culture has this negative impression of Christians— and because oftentimes the church is known for these things. We aren't known for what we're doing. We aren't known for extending love. We're known for what we're against. And because of this, what happens is people, when they start feeling that greatest need inside of them, you know what the greatest need is? Relationship. People's greatest need is authentic relationship. And when, when the church and when Christians have this view of all these negative images, 
people don't go to look for authentic relationship in the church. They start going to the world around them, the culture around them. Okay? Not all churches and not all Christians are like this. Not all churches and Christians are like this. But unfortunately, there are many uh, outspoken evangelical Christians out there who have done much more harm than than they've done good at advancing the kingdom of God. They've expressed a moral superiority to those outside of Christ, to those outside of the church. And their obvious disdain and condemnation of the culture and of people's lifestyles have given us all a bad impression. And it leaves us fighting an uphill battle to do what God has called us to do, which is to share the love of Christ with the entire world. Fred Feltz, who's the pastor of Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas, He's nationally known for preaching with slogans and with signs, with messages like this, God hates fags. He has a message that says, fags die, God laughs. And, and, and Phelps and his followers, they frequently picket military funerals, protesting war and thanking God that our soldiers are dying. There's a pastor named John Hagee, who's pastor of Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas. And he said that the devastation from Hurricane Katrina several years ago, he said all that devastation happened as God's judgment towards America's homosexual sin. And then you have Pastor, Pastor Ted Haggard, who was a well-known uh, pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he was very open from the pulpit about being against homosexual relationships. But later he was exposed to have his own homosexual lifestyle. You see, because of these statements by these these outspoken Christians, because of these statements by these Christian men and women, and because of stances of churches like this, the world has an incredibly poor view of Christianity. They have an incredible poor view of what the church is about and what Christ is about. And we become known more for what we are against than what we're for. We're known for what we hate. We're known for what we protest. We're known for our assumed moral superiority and lack of grace rather than being known for the things that we are doing. Like feeding the hungry, helping the poor, extending Christ's love. So the question I have for you is when people disagree with your beliefs, when people disagree with your view on Christ, with your view on on, on morality, do you become angry? And defensive and rather unloving. See, oftentimes when somebody disagrees with us, we begin to, to put up these barriers and put up these walls. We become judgmental of their lifestyles and their choices. And we begin to say, man, this person doesn't agree with how I view life. And so I'm going to begin to create separation between me and them. I'm going to pull my family back and say, I don't want my family to be exposed to this. And I'm going to pull my family back into what I know is safe and and secure. (laughs) We begin to protect our families and our churches. And we become fearful of negative infiltration. We become fearful that their sinfulness and their rebellion against God will begin to wear on to us. And then pretty soon we'll be in the same sinfulness and rebellion against god but see the issue is we begin to segregate ourselves from the people that jesus commanded us to go and to love we begin to segregate ourselves from the very people who need to hear about the saving grace of jesus christ 
And instead of meeting them where they're at and showing them the unconditional love and grace that you and I expect from Jesus every day, we expect God to give us that uh, unconditional grace and love. And we begin to, to cut other people off from the unconditional grace and love. We condemn them for not living according to godly standards, and we judge them for their sin. So here we are today, dealing with this question of, does God hate gays? This is not a new topic. This has been an issue in every culture, and every race, and every nation for thousands and thousands of years. We know that it is a hot topic in our own country. The Supreme Court is having a debate as to whether or not gay marriage should be redefined instead of being between a man and a woman, but being between anybody who wants to be married. There are scientific studies going on right now trying to determine, is somebody born gay or is it an assumed lifestyle? And there are scientific studies with scientists on either side trying to prove their point. And, and, And regardless... Regardless of what you and I would believe on an issue as sensitive as this, regardless of, of how you and I would want to believe, you know what we have to do? We have to go to God's word. We have to go to God's word and say, God, what do you have to say? Because God's word is more important than a scientific study that shows whether a person is born gay or not. You see, the Bible, not scientific studies, must be our authority in all matters concerning life. And so we're going to go, and we're going to open up God's word, and we're going to say, God, what would you have to show us? So first things first, we're going to open up God's word, and we're going to see what God has to say about homosexuality. And once we determine what God's word says about that, then we're going to figure out how do we respond to that lifestyle? How do we respond to people that are in that lifestyle? So let's read a couple verses together. They'll be on the screen. Leviticus 18, go ahead and show that one up. Leviticus 18 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Go and show the next one. Leviticus 20, 13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. 1 Timothy 9 through 10, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 9 through 10 says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners. For the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for the murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You see, there are so many verses that we could open up and we can look at. But throughout all of Scripture, we need to understand that there is not one verse that is positive towards homosexuality. In fact, the Bible is clear that sex is limited to being between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. Any sex outside of that is sin. That includes adultery. That includes fornication. That includes homosexual sex. That includes all of these things outside of the way that God designed it is sin. Even if somebody believes that they were born that way, it is still sin. And it should not be practiced in their life. See, why, why do we need to trust God's word for this? I mean, we look at God's word and we say, well, God's word seems so judgmental. I mean, it's, God seems, we saw what he said. It seems, why would, he seems so intolerant. Why do we need to open up God's word to understand this? Well, I would say this. I would say that uh, we have this thing inside of us called a sin nature. We were all born with this thing called a sin nature. 
And we have a natural bent towards sin. We have a natural bent to doing our own thing and, and, and wanting to be our own God. And, and, and in fact, in the book of Proverbs, the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful above all other things. Our hearts have a sin nature inside of them. And we can't, we, you know, we'll say, well, we just need to follow our heart and, you know, I'll just do whatever my mind tells me to do. But the problem is we have that sin nature and that sin nature trans, trans, uh, transcends our mind and transcends our heart. And so we are naturally inclined to not do what is right, but to do what feels best for us. You see, we want to look at God's word and say, man, God created the whole world. God created the whole world. He freaking created everything. He knows how it works best. He knows how life works best. So that's why we go to God's word and say, God, what do you have for us? What would you have to say about this issue of homosexuality? So let's be clear. From a biblical standpoint, there is no way to use the Bible to support or promote a homosexual lifestyle. Okay, that's clear. But there's so much more that goes to this issue. There's so much more that you and I need to hear that goes to this issue. How do we handle homosexuality? How do we handle people who are in that lifestyle? See, unfortunately, there's been a lot of hate directed towards homosexuals. Homosexuals have been the target of vicious intolerance and hate crimes. And unfortunately, as we looked at, there are many people claiming Jesus who have done a very terrible job of extending God's love towards homosexuals. And those claiming Christianity have brought more shame on the cause of Christ in reaching the homosexuals and, and, and has given us an uphill battle to fight, to reach people for Christ. See, somehow it's like, we, it's like we've got these lists, we've graded our sins, and we've got this list, and we say, you know, there's all these different sins, and we choose which sins are worse, and we're going to put homosexuality on the top of the list and say, this is terrible. And, and so anybody in this lifestyle, we're just going to judge and we're going to be intolerant. We're going we're gonna to hate on. So let's look back at our text in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to actually, John chapter 7, starting in verse 53. Let's read this together. It says, they went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in, the, in, in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? The, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and rode in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's our text for today. Now, as we examine this passage of Scripture, one of the first things I notice is before this passage, I see this little uh, quotation that says, The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. See, these verses 
there, there is a, a textual concern about these verses. The, as you do a textual analysis of the Bible, uh, there is a general long-standing consensus that this passage was not in the original of John's Gospel. If you were to go back and look at the earliest manuscripts from the 5th century and earlier, so the original manuscripts close to when Jesus was w- 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 closest to Jesus, when you go back and look at those manuscripts, you don't find this story. In fact, any of the early church fathers, you don't find them teaching on this as they're interpreting the scripture. You don't see this specific passage taught about. And, and, and additionally, one of the other reasons for textual analysis that has a concern about this passage is because as you look at the, the earliest manuscripts from the 6th century and 7th century, you find that this story is in all sorts of different places. You'll find it sometimes they place it after John 736, Sometimes they place it after John 7.44. There's another manuscript that has this story in John 21.25. And there's even one uh, manuscript that has this story in Luke 21. So does this mean that the story was made up? I mean, that's what we're all thinking right now, right? Does this mean this story was made up? The answer is absolutely no. The story is not made up. This story has been known from the very beginning of church history and was a part of the oral tradition. In fact, there's this guy named Eusebius, uh, Eusebius, and he records that Papias, who was a student of the Apostle John, who was a student of the, 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 the guy that wrote the book of John, and not only did he know this story, but he expounded on this story as a real incident in the life of Christ. So even though John 7:53 through 8:11 may not appear in the earliest manuscripts, we know that it is a true story, and therefore it is profitable for our consideration. Now, obviously, this isn't a story about homosexuality, but it is a powerful story on how we are to treat people who are in a lifestyle of sin, specifically to people outside of Christ, specifically to people outside of the church. This is a great story that applies to us on how we treat people. So the night before this happened, there was a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was the religious ruling council, and and they're meeting to try and determine, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is Jesus really the Christ? Is Jesus really who he said he was? And there was this guy named Nicodemus, and he was defending Jesus. And, and it came to the end of the meeting, and uh, no conclusion was made. And so everybody goes home after the meeting. And the next morning, we see that Jesus came back to Jerusalem and was going back to the temple, and he sat down to preach and to teach the people. And while he's there, while Jesus is teaching, all of a sudden, these religious leaders, these religious rulers... They storm in, and they drag this woman, and her her clothes are in a disarray. Her hair is disheveled. She's defiant. She's resisting the leaders, and and they throw her in at the foot of Jesus. You've got to picture that the crowd around, even those people not listening to Jesus, the crowd around, they naturally, this would have caught their attention. They wanted to hear what the commotion was all about, what's going on. So they fling her down in front of Jesus, and they pronounce a hard judgment against her. They say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. There's no question that this woman was guilty of sin. She was caught in the act of having sex with a man outside of marriage. Christ would call it sin at the end of the scripture. So we know that, we know that it was wrong, and it was against God's law. These men, these religious leaders, they knew, they knew the law very well. They knew that Mosaic law says in Leviticus 20 that if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. But where's the man? 
Where's the man? We see they brought the woman and threw her down in front of Jesus. Where's the man? See, the fact that they did not bring the man proves that these religious leaders weren't really interested in fulfilling the law. They had an agenda. They were looking to trap Jesus. They didn't want to stone her. They wanted to stone Jesus. They wanted to trap Jesus and would do whatever it took, even to the point of embarrassing another person because of her sin, because they wanted to trap Jesus. See, this woman should be stoned. And they, they, they want to know what Jesus has to say about it. What do you say, Jesus? Is he going to contradict the law of Moses? Will he offer some sort of explanation? See, this crowd was more concerned about their personal agenda than the soul of the person that they are affecting. They're more concerned about their agenda than the soul of this woman. They didn't care about this woman's feelings. They didn't care if she was embarrassed. Instead of, uh, but instead, they dragged her. They flung her down in front of the large crowd. And they loudly proclaimed her sin in front of all the people. They completely and utterly humiliate her in front of all of these people. Imagine this. Imagine having your sins called out in front of the church today. Imagine somebody walks in and begins casting judgment and ex- saying all of your sin from right here. This, this man over here, he's caught in, in a homosexual lifestyle. This lady over here, she signed up to be on the prayer chain, which is really just how she can get caught up on the latest gossip in the church. This, this guy over here, he is having a, an affair on his wife. It may, not be, it may not be physical. It might just be an emotional affair. But he's having an affair. Imagine having our sins called out in front of the church. That is what is happening. These men, they cared more about their agenda than about the soul of this woman. See, it's the same thing today. There are so many personal and political agendas flying around today that we have forgotten to think about how people are affected by our actions. We are so quick to bash people that we forget that sometimes they don't even know what they're doing. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. See, why do we want to publicly humiliate people who are caught in homosexuality? Why do we want to publicly humiliate people who don't have the same morality as we do? Because if they don't know Christ, they don't know any difference. They are living for themselves. They don't know that God has a better plan for them. They don't know. They, don't are, they are held to the same standard that you and I are because they have not come into that relationship with Christ. And what, 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 what 1 Corinthians 5 says is we don't have the right to judge those outside of, the, outside of Christ. But how many times do we do that? We look, we look and we see these gay prides and we say we're going to cast judgment on every one of these people. God hates you because you're gay. Really? Are we to judge those outside of Christ? No, we're not. No, we're not. See, no, per, no, the person in the sin, <laughs> the danger is we quickly shift from focusing and attacking the sin to attacking the person in the sin. Instead of attacking the sin, we begin attacking the person in the sin. See, the issue is that person in sin, they need help to be free from their sin. They need help to know who Christ is and that Christ loves them and has, has a great plan for the life and that, he sent the, that God sent Jesus to die for them on the cross. But instead of, of offering that hope, we offer condemnation. We offer judgment. We offer and put our agenda of our morality over the soul of that person. See, Restoration Church, we need to be more about souls than we are an agenda. 
We need to be more about making Christ known than our agenda of our morality. John, verses 6 and 7, we see the defiant woman. She's flung before Jesus. And the crowd, they've got no respect for her embarrassment. But notice Jesus, he doesn't look at her. Jesus is, is looking down at the ground and he's drawn on the ground. I think he doesn't look at her is to not add any more embarrassment to her. He doesn't want to add to that. And we see him writing on the ground. What does he write? We don't really know. This is actually the only time in Scripture that you see Jesus writing, writing anything. And it was erased shortly after. One idea I have as to what Jesus was writing is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me, 9 through 11. Go and show the next one. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And as such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Did you see that? Homosexuality isn't singled out. Homosexuality was not singled out. It's, it's lumped in with all these other sins of worshiping idols and, and, and adultery and greed and verbal abuse. Galatians 5 carries that same idea and lumps sexual immorality in with jealousy and selfish ambition and envy and divisiveness. See, the truth is, homosexuality is not worse than any of these other sins. We want to make it, we've got our list and we've said, man, these are the bad ones. These are the worst ones. And for some reason, we've put homosexuality way up here. But God says, you know what? I don't grade sins like you do. They're all sin to me. And so that homosexuality that we have such a hard time with isn't any different than your envy. Isn't any different than your and my greed. Homosexuality is not worse than any of these sins. God says it's the same as greed and jealousy. You see, we are so quick to point out someone else's sin. The fact that they live in a lifestyle that is contrary to what God has designed. Yet, did you notice that verse? It says, and such were some of you. And such were some of us. And such are still some of us. See, there are some of us here, probably many of us, who were or are these things up here. Perhaps Jesus is down on the ground and he's writing in the dirt. Perhaps he's writing the names and he's linking the names of the accusers to their sins. He's linking the names of the accusers to their sins. Hey, this guy, he's got an adulterous relationship. So maybe Jesus is writing his name and the name of the woman on there too. Maybe there's another guy who cheated on his taxes. And maybe Jesus is down on the ground and he's writing the dollar total, the amount of money that this guy has stolen. We don't know what Jesus is writing on the ground. But I would guess, I would say, perhaps, maybe it's linking the accusers to their sin. Undoubtedly, the anticipation is rising. What's Jesus going to say? And Jesus finally speaks, and his words cut to the heart of the accusers. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He says, every one of them, from the oldest down to the youngest, they dropped their stones, they turned, and they were walked away. They were just as guilty as the woman was. Their sins were no worse than hers. I mean, how many of our sins are worthy of death? 
How many of our sins are worthy of death? Every one of them. All of them. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death. You see, every one of us in here today, every single one of us this morning, we deserve death. We are all sinners. None of us in here is perfect. We are all sinners. Jesus makes it clear that the requirement needed to judge others was sinfulness. You see, seeing people lost in sin, seeing people lost in their sinfulness, it should drop you and I to our knees, crying out to God because we're all sinful. It should drop us to our knees saying, you know what? I'm sinful just like that person. As were some of us, and as still some of us are. Is homosexuality sin? Absolutely. But is it any worse than any other sin? No. Regardless of what the Christians say on TV, regardless of how you were raised, homosexuality is not any different than any other sin. It's no worse than lying. It's no worse than looking at pornography. It's no worse than stealing or gossip or grumbling. You, may not, you might say, well, I don't struggle with homosexuality, but you, I guarantee you we all struggle with something. You might say, hey, I don't struggle with homosexuality, but I guarantee you we all struggle with something. Hebrews 12 talks about the sin that so easily besets us. I would say we all have something that we struggle with. For some of you, for some of us, we struggle with alcohol. We, we, we take a sip of alcohol and pretty soon we're consumed and we, we, we become a different person and it's a very dangerous thing. For some of you, you don't have an issue with alcohol. It's nothing. Some of you, some of you, you have a bent towards lying. You have a bent towards lust. You have a bent, we all have a sin that easily besets us. You may not struggle with the same thing. You may not struggle with homosexuality, but we all have bent towards sin. So why is it so easy for us to parade homosexuals around like this adulterous woman? Why is it so easy for us to parade them around and, and, and cast judgment on them? Yet we expect to be extended grace and love for our own hangups, for our issues, for our struggles. See, what have they done that is so worse than the sins that you and I have committed? See, God's word says that for our sin we deserve death. But Jesus paid the price for us. Jesus paid the price. Because of his death, we have been redeemed. We have been saved. His grace has washed us clean. Praise God. Praise God for that. That we are just as sinful as the homosexual or as the adulterous woman. But God redeemed us. God died for us. So everyone leaves, and it's just Jesus and the woman. And this is it, right? This is the time that Jesus is going to jump down her throat, right? This is when Jesus is going to go all crazy on her, right? This woman was guilty of sin, according to the Mosaic law, and she should be put to death. But look what Jesus said to her. He said, woman, where, where are they now? Has no one con condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, here this woman, she was guilty of sin. She was guilty of sin. And according to the law of Moses, she was to be put to death. So here this woman was guilty of sin. And according to the law of Moses, she was to be put to death. Does this mean that Jesus was going against the Mosaic law? No. What Jesus is doing is he's putting the cross 
between this woman and her sin. He's putting the cross between her and her sin, and he's saying, I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die for that sin, and I'm going to die for you. You see, again, we look at what Tim Stevens says about the negative images of Christians. And due to our self-righteousness, due to our moral superiority, and due to our judgments on people who don't live the same morally as we do, people think God is just out there to get them. They have this picture of God being just this, this big, mean guy who's always looking out to get you. And the only reason that God is this is to condemn us of our sin and to judge people for their sin. But John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus didn't come to judge this woman. He came to be her Savior. He came to be her Savior. Is that the message that we share with people in sin? That Jesus came to be your Savior? Or did Jesus come to be your judge? Jesus came to be our Savior. And I know some of you are sitting in your seats right now. And, and your blood pressure is beginning to boil. And you're at the edge of your seat saying, no, sin has to be dealt with. Sin can't be tolerated. Sin can't be washed over. Sin has to be dealt with. And I would argue that, yes, Jesus dealt with this woman's sin. He didn't excuse it. He didn't justify it. He told her to go and sin no more. But what was his purpose? Was he concerned more about her moral life? Or was he more concerned about her soul? See, absolutely, he was more concerned about her soul than anything else. See, as we read through the Gospels, as we read through God's Word and say, Show us, God, we read that Jesus is called the friend of sinners. And that he would often hang out and eat with sinners. Matthew chapter 11, Luke 15, Mark 2. They all say that Jesus was a friend of sinners and he would go out and he would hang out and eat with sinners. In fact, Luke 5, verses 27 to 32 says this, And after Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. You know, tax collectors, they were the worst of the worst. Tax collectors were despised in their day. They were morally bankrupt. They would steal, they would lie, they would abuse their power. They were, they were the worst people of the day. And it says, Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast at his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have, come to, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus never apologized for being an insider with the outsiders. That was his mission. What kind of doctor refuses to see patients? What kind of doctor would say, hey, you're sick. I don't want to be contaminated. I'm not going to see you. What kind of doctor or what kind of farmer refuses to get his hands dirty? And what kind of church doesn't have a place for sinners? See, people revile Jesus because of this. They call him a drunken, a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of tax, cleaners, tax collectors and sinners. Let me ask you this. How many non-Christians are you friends with? How many sinners are you friends with? No, I don't mean sinners. I don't mean non-Christians like, you know, at the, at the water cooler at work. Hey, how's it going, Joe? Good to see you, man. We'll see you, see you next water break. Well, I'm not talking about that. How many non-Christians do you go out with and say, hey, let's go have dinner tonight at Olive Garden? 
How many non-Christians do you decide to spend time with with the purpose of, uh, of being a witness to them? You see, do we view non-Christians primarily as dangers or as opportunities? Do we live life hoping for conversion or fearing contamination? 1 John 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that? See, oftentimes we live in this Christian subculture. We have our little Christian bubbles. We, we, we go to our Christian schools, and we go to our Christian functions, and we have our Christian friends. We spend all of our time with our Christian friends, and we, we listen to Christian music, and we go to Christian concerts, and we watch Christian TV shows, and we have this Christian subculture that we live in. And this isn't wrong. This isn't wrong at all. But the thing is, we, when we do this, we segregate ourselves from the people who need Jesus the most. See, God has given us the message of the gospel God has given us a mission of knowing Christ and making Christ known. Yet, how many times do we cut ourselves off from the very people who desperately need to hear about the message of Jesus Christ? (laughs) Really, this message has less to do about homosexuality and sin and has more to do with grace and love. See, I told you last week that I pray that Restoration Church would become a haven of unconditional love where people can come and not experience judgment and condemnation, but would receive grace and love through relationship. That's what I want restoration to be. This is why one of our core values at Restoration says it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. The gospel, if we're talking about the true gospel, it works through repentance and relationships. We need both. Jesus had relationships with tax collectors and with sinners. And, and, and what, did he, what did he do when he had a relationship with them? He called them to repentance. And he said, come and follow me. Why is it that we have such a hard time extending love to people? Who is it that you and I have a hard time extending love to? Who is it that is so easy for you to judge rather than extend love and a relationship to? Is it the homosexual? Is it the foul-mouthed kid down the street? Is it the disheveled homeless guy sitting on the corner of First and Knob Hill? Is it that person who did that thing to you a long ago that changed your life forever? Who is it that you and I have a difficult time extending grace and love to? See, my prayer is that each of us would look inside of our own hearts and confess before God our own self-righteousness. That we confess that even subconsciously, we have unlovingly judged people. Whether they be the homosexual, whether they be the drug addict, whether they be that foul-mouthed little kid. The compulsive liar. See, my prayer is that we would confess our self-righteousness. And that we would be people of grace and love. Just as we want that grace and love from God, that we would extend that grace and love to people here. To people in our lives. That we wouldn't drag and flaunt people's sin like these religious leaders did with the adulterous woman. But extend, but but rather that we would extend love and grace and that we would allow the gospel to change people. These people who are desperately in need of a relationship, who desperately need the love and grace and desperately need the gospel. 
we're going through this small group study called the Explicit Gospel. And one of the things we're talking about is we're talking about change and how, how, how we can force ourselves and we can, we, we can grit our knuckles and say, I'm going to change. And we begin to try and change ourselves. But lasting change comes from the gospel. Lasting change comes from the gospel. So why wouldn't we want to share the gospel and love and grace with people so people can experience lasting change through Jesus Christ? Because that's where the change really comes from. It doesn't come because we say this is the way you're supposed to live. It comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. (laughs) Restoration Church, God's word is clear. Homosexuality is a sin. It is not God's plan or design, and he doesn't condone it in our lives. But God's mission isn't for us to be the morality police in the world, but it's to call people into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to call them to repentance. Let's be a church, and let's be a people that is more concerned about souls for Jesus than our agenda. Amen?